traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Where are we? What are we? Who are we? These are three questions that we've probably all asked at some point in our lives. Maybe not in the plural sense, but certainly in the singular. Where am I? What am I? Who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing with my life? And who am I supposed to be? Now we're seconds into this Twilight Zone podcast and already things are getting kind of heavy. But in this case, I think it's a case of how can it not be? You know, it's always a bit of a balancing act with this show. The Twilight Zone has many levels. On one end of the spectrum, there's the pure enjoyment of it as a piece of entertainment. The stories, the actors, the production. But on the other end, there's the philosophy and the more existential aspect of it. And hopefully somewhere in between, the poetry. So I do try to find that balance and not be too far one way or the other and take all of these different aspects into account. But when this episode begins... We're presented with such an abstract scene in front of us that then I have to ask myself one of those questions. Where am I and what am I doing? How do I approach this one? An army major awakes in this cylindrical room with high walls. Then he encounters a clown, a ballerina, a tramp and a bagpiper. Five people in all. But not just any people, people with very distinct and different roles and looks. People who you immediately identify with a certain thing the moment you see them. So surely if you encounter these people, then maybe that's a clue as to where you are. Who are you? What are you doing here? Is there a circus around here somewhere? A circus? Yeah, Yeah, there must be a circus. A clown, a circus, an officer, a war. That's logic, isn't it? But it doesn't figure at all. Not at all. Why not? Because there is no circus. And there is no war. You're just like the rest of us. The rest of us? Who are we? None of us knows, Major. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. Each of us woke up one moment. And here we were in the darkness. I love that line. Each of us woke up one moment and here we were in the darkness. It's almost too obvious for me to point out that This is how we all flicker into existence. But what an abstract, bizarre and completely 
surreal opening scene this is. And now that we've found ourselves here, how are we gonna get out when we join these five characters in search of an exit? Clown, hobo, ballet dancer, bagpiper, and an army major. A collection of question marks. Five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare, we'll only explain it. Because this is the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on December 22nd, 1961. Written by Rod Serling, but based on a short story by Marvin Petal and directed by Lamont Johnson. This is a wonderful opening narration by Rod Serling. We have that ominous music creeping along in the background and then the camera pans up and here he is at the rim of the room. And he gives us no comfort at this point, no indication that these people are going to be okay or why they're there. Only an indication that there will be an explanation, but no end to the nightmare. It has that poetic element that I love in a Rod Serling opening narration and I find it to be just brilliant. Our director Lamont Johnson returns after his triumph in the shelter earlier in the season, and this is his second of eight Twilight Zones. Next up is Nothing in the Dark, so what an amazing trio to begin his run on the show. Seeing as we met him not so long ago, I won't go through his full bio, but there is one thing that I will mention that I don't think I did last time round, and that is, in its own way, rather wonderful. Lamont Johnson's final directing job was an episode of a show called Felicity. Now, I'm not particularly familiar with this show, and I'm not sure it ever aired in the UK, but the synopsis on IMDb goes like this. It all starts the moment shy, beautiful Felicity Porter asks Ben Covington to sign her high school yearbook. It's graduation day, he's gorgeous, and she's had a four-year crush on him. Even though the two have never spoken, what he writes is so insightful, so perfect, it persuades Felicity to change the course of her future, a future defined by medical school and the dreams of her parents. She follows Ben to the University of New York and is quickly swept into a romantic triangle that brings both discovery and heartache. Felicity moved to New York to find romance, but ends up finding herself. Now, I'm not sure that it's a show that would ever have caught my attention except for a couple of things. One of the creators of the show was J.J. Abrams, who of course has gone on to become an A-list presence in the movie world and, as we know, is a big Twilight Zone fan. 
But in the year 2000, Abrams wrote an episode of Felicity called Help for the Lovelorn. And rather like the gimmick episodes I spoke about in the last episode, the gimmick this time round was that it was staged like an episode of The Twilight Zone, and the director was Lamont Johnson. Witness Felicity Porter. In many ways, your typical 19-year-old college sophomore. Studious, dedicated, kind. Felicity Porter, who serves coffee and pastries to nameless patrons. Patrons who, until today, haven't had the particular talent of glancing at her face and reading her mind. Felicity Porter, making a phone call that will change her life forever. Now I watched this episode and it is a very affectionate homage to the Twilight Zone. It's completely in black and white with Twilight Zone-esque music and nods to several Twilight Zone episodes like What You Need and of course five characters in search of an exit. Considering that the episode we're speaking about tonight is considered such a classic, it is I think quite nice that he was brought back for this by J.J. Abrams and kind of fitting that it was his last work as well before he passed away. But back to our episode, the Major is trying to find a way out of the room in which he's been trapped. Having the Major as the introductory character was a smart move because I think we as an audience see a military man and we automatically think of him as level-headed and probably dependable, not prone to flights of fancy. If we had been maybe introduced to the clown first, I don't think we'd have started with our feet on the ground. We see the Major and we think he's been maybe kidnapped by a foreign government or maybe even aliens, so we're effectively as surprised as him at the bizarreness of the overall situation. The Major was played by William Wyndham, and after serving in World War II, he began his screen acting career in 1949, and when he started, he never stopped. He was a very busy actor, and he was in so many of the high-profile television shows that went on during his lifetime, things like Columbo, Quincy, The Incredible Hulk, the list just goes on and on. And looking down his bio, he seemed to be someone who would jump from show to show, rather than taking a long time in a recurring role. But there's so many in the list that it's possible that he may have done. There are a couple of prominent Rod Sailing links. Apart from appearing in the Twilight Zone again, in the episode Miniature, he played the president in one of the better Planet of the Apes sequels, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He also played a couple of roles in Night Gallery 2. He played Professor Putnam in the story Little Girl Lost, which is not the same story as the Twilight Zone version that will be coming to soon. But he also plays the lead in the episode The Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. Now, if you know Night Gallery, you will know that this is probably one of the most highly regarded episodes, and I always think of it as the third part of Rod Serling's Man in Midlife Crisis trilogy, along with Walking Distance and A Stop at Willoughby. Now, I prefer the two Twilight Zones overall, but I really do like the tearing down Tim Riley's bar too, and 
it's fascinating to see sailing during this later period going back to this theme again that he went to in the Twilight Zone. In this, I think Wyndham is pretty much pitch perfect as the level-headed soldier thrust into this bizarre situation. And he really gives us that footing and that purchase, that base to build the rest of the story on. We can experience this with him as the one we identify with. And in the Twilight Zone companion, he said, I just poured on the coal. You try to make it undoll-like as long as you can which isn't hard to do, because they're all sort of strange people. If you recall at the end of the last episode when I handed over to Rod Sailing to find out what episode was next, he really kind of talked up the ending to this one. There seemed to be a confidence there as if to say, not only will you be blown away by it, but I don't think you'll ever guess it. And so confident is the episode itself, that at one point the characters even trot out a list of possible explanations which likely would have been used in several stories in the past and would be used again in the future. What's up there? You name it. Sky, artificial light, a fluorescent lamp, an illuminated microscope. You name it. One guess is as good as the other. Maybe we're on another planet. Or maybe we're on a spaceship, going to another planet. Maybe we're all insane. Or maybe this is a mirage, an illusion. We're dead, and this is limbo. We don't really exist. We're dream figures from somebody else's existence. Oh, we're each of us having a dream. And everyone else is part of the other person's dream. You call it. You can have it. That's the one thing we have an abundance of. Possibilities. An infinite number of possibilities. All explanations that could conceivably be used at the end of this and have been used in other stories, even other Twilight Zones. But what about this story? Where did this one come from? I mentioned earlier that it was based on a short story by Marvin Petal, and I would have dearly loved to get my hands on it to read it, but I believe that it went unpublished probably because it was bought for the Twilight Zone. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. quotes Marvin Petal, and he says, I attended a democratic rally held at the home of Robert Ryan. That was 1960, I guess and it was for the Democratic Party in general. I knew Rod Sailing was going to be there, so I typed a synopsis about four or five pages called The Depository, and wrote the whole scenario on speculation, mostly with dialogue. I approached Sailing at the party and said, Listen, I have a story that I think would make a great script for The Twilight Zone. Sailing said, Well, submit it to my producer, Buck Houghton. So I did. And they said, okay, we'll buy it, but Rod wants to do the script, which I believe paid about $2,000. I was paid only $250 and no residuals. As many times as that episode has been rerun on television, I regret not getting any residuals. So that's where the story came from, but as we know, it didn't keep the name, the depository, and Martin Petal explains why. 
He said they changed the title of the original story because, as they explained to me, they felt it sounded too much like suppository. Rod kept the story pretty damn close to how I had it. I believe he took out one character, but it was pretty much the same as I had written it. So then the title became Five Characters in Search of an Exit, which is inspired by Luigi Pirandello's stage play from 1921 called Six Characters in Search of an Author, and the plot of the play goes like this. An acting company prepares to rehearse the play Mixing It Up by Luigi Pirandello. As the rehearsal is about to begin, they are unexpectedly interrupted by the arrival of six strange people. The director of the play, furious at the interruption, demands an explanation. The father explains that they are unfinished characters in search of an author to finish their story. The director initially believes them to be mad, but as they begin to argue amongst themselves and reveal details of their story, he begins to listen. The father and the mother had one child together, the son, but they have separated and mother has three children by another man, the stepdaughter, the boy and the child, who is a girl. The father attempted to buy sex from the stepdaughter, claiming he did not recognise her after so many years. But the stepdaughter is convinced he knew who she was the entire time. The mother walked in on the father and the stepdaughter shortly after the father's proposal and informs the stepdaughter that he is her ex-husband. They both express their disgust and outrage. While the director is not an author, he agrees to continue this story despite disbelief among the jeering actors. Now the final act of the play begins in the garden and it's revealed that there was much arguing among the family members as the father sent for the mother, the stepdaughter, the child, the boy and the son to come back and stay with him. The son reveals that he hates the family for sending him away and does not consider the stepdaughter or the others part of his family. The scene ends with the child drowning in a fountain, the boy committing suicide with a revolver and the stepdaughter running out of the theatre, leaving the son, the mother and the father on stage. The play ends with the director, confused over whether it was real or not, concluding that in either case, he lost a whole day over it. And I kind of lost a whole day reading that synopsis, but I think it might just seem that only the name bears some similarity. Perhaps there is this aspect of a fictional character's point of view only being fiction if you are outside of that and the character themselves, well, to them, it's just their point of view. Now, I'm not sure when the term meta was actually originated. It is used quite regularly these days but that certainly has that aspect to it. And the story seems to feature characters who are who they are because they were created that way. Now Rod Serling promised us clues and perhaps this is one of the biggest. Someone knows we're here. How so? They have to. You've all been here a while, possibly a long while. Someone must feed you, someone must give you water. Well, someone must bring food down. There's been no food or water. But we'll starve to death or we'll die of thirst. To feel hungry, Major, or thirsty, or heat or cold, or 
fatigue or discomfort? Or anything? Do you feel anything, Major? So why do they not feel hunger, thirst, tiredness, and so on? Well, we'll get to that, of course, but in our cast, the main speaking parts go to the Major, the Clown, and the Ballerina. And the Ballerina was played by Susan Garrison, who was born in 1938, and her acting career was actually quite short. In 1957, she had a prominent part in the film The Sweet Smell of Success with Tony Curtis and Bert Lancaster, in which she plays Bert Lancaster's sister. After that, there's only eight more credits on her biography. And this episode is the second to last thing that is on there, with the last being from 1963 in the TV series Breaking Point. Now in that movie, The Sweet Smell of Success, she played the sister to Bert Lancaster's gossip columnist, but in real life, her daughter appeared in one of the TV shows of emerging reality television. The show actually raised the profile of reality television even further. Her daughter is called Darva Conga, who won the television show Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire, and then went on to marry that millionaire, who was called Rick Rosenthal, for a while at least. I really enjoy Susan's part in Five Characters in Search of an Exit. I think of all the actors in it, and all the characters, she is probably the biggest clue as to what they actually are. Early on when we see her, when she's moving, she's moving not quite just as a ballerina, but like a doll ballerina with the stiffness of her limbs. And when she speaks, she has that slightly vacant air about her. And when she smiles, it's like she smiles because she has a face that is made to smile, and not necessarily because she knows why she smiles. And as our story continues, the Major also continues to try and find a way out. But then the ballerina has an idea. Wait a minute. Oh, come now. This is becoming a little ridiculous. Why not? Why not what? What you said, acrobatics. A figure of speech, my dear, not meant to be taken seriously. I grant you that we have somehow forfeited some of our human dignity, but we are nonetheless governed by human frailty, not the least of which is gravity. Perhaps you know some acrobatics I am quite unaware of. Well, I see what she's getting at. Don't any of you see it? One on top of the other, standing on each other's shoulders. Well, how about that? Isn't that the way they do it in circuses? I'll ask him when he comes in. Now the clown said something there and it's referred to earlier on by the Major as well when he says that they must have been severed from their lives in some way. These characters are all something. They act in a certain way because they are that thing. But they have no past. They are what they are because they are. And that's something that I just find really quite fascinating. How much do we take on? How much do we make ourselves act in a certain way because of what we do? So it's really quite an interesting thing and I'll come back to that a bit later on. Despite his very upper class British accent, Maury Matheson, who played the clown, was 
actually born in Australia. And after working some regular jobs like being a bank clerk, his desire to act eventually brought him to Melbourne, where he trained in the theatre. He then moved to England where he trod the boards on the London stage until his acting career took a back seat when he served as an intelligence officer in the RAF attached to the British Embassy in Moscow. Following the war he then moved to Canada and his screen career began to take off. He popped up in several of the popular shows of the time like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and later in life continued to be a presence on television with parts in Battlestar Galactica and Kolchak the Night Stalker, so he's got quite a few genre credits to his name. And although this was his only appearance in This Twilight Zone, he went on to have a part in the Night Gallery story, The Doll of Death, and also had a part in the Kick the Can segment of Twilight Zone the movie. What I really love about him in this episode is that dual aspect of his personality. One minute he's playing the fool clowning around, and the next he's saying the most insightful and philosophical things of all of them. And it's almost as if that, if any of them have an idea of what's going on here, especially this aspect of them being what they are because it's what they are. I mean, earlier on he sings a song, we're here because, we're here because, and it goes on and on into infinity. I think that he's the only one who I don't think he knows what's going on but maybe has this inkling but maybe that is the domain of the clown they know more than most of us why we're here and that's why they laugh so much in the twilight zone companion he said I was upside down for most of the time but I started as a dancer on the stage so that part of it was easy for me So I really enjoy his part in this, especially his interaction with the straight-ahead Major. We'll go on the first person, so I'll start it. The clown on my shoulders, and the tramp, and the bagpiper, and then the girl. Now how about it? If it were up to me, I'd have put the bagpiper on the bottom, but seeing how we are now close to the end, let's have a look at our last two characters. Kelton Garwood played the Tramp and he was born in 1928 so would have been in his 30s by this point. In early life while at university he would appear in plays and work as a magician and then went on to study acting in New York. By all accounts this seems to be the role he is most remembered for but he did work fairly steadily in the 60s most notably with a recurring role in Gunsmoke as Percy Crump, but then seemed to stop acting on screen in the early 70s, until a single role in 1988, in Return to Snowy River. Sadly, Kelton died young, at the age of 63. And our last character is the bagpiper played by Clark Allen, and he only actually has four screen credits to his name. He was in the shows Peter Gunn and Michael Shane, And in those shows, he's only credited as guitarist. And then there's the Twilight Zone where he's the bagpiper. And then only one more credit in 1963 in a show called Channing. And there isn't even a name attached to whatever character he played in that. When we see a bio like this, I think it's easy to maybe assume that maybe he had a 
failed acting career or something, but I think the truth of it in this case seems to be that Clark Allen had a lot more going on in his life and he seemed to want to do different things. Apparently he was a musician, a singer, a nautical historian, a model maker, a linguist. He owned a nightclub where he was shot in a robbery attempt once and he was a painter and a sculptor and apparently Vincent Price was a collector of his work. Clark Allen passed away in 2008 and the artist Nathan Falk said of him, he was a delightful man and a favourite subject for local artists, especially me. I started drawing and painting Clark in 1992 when I first moved to LA and I've been working with him on and off ever since. I have stacks of drawings and paintings of him. He lived a more colourful life than many of us can hope for. I thought his stories were tall tales until I visited his home and we looked through his old photo albums. And it was my pleasure to get to know him. He will be missed. So it's quite interesting to look at some of these actors now. A lot of them we know what they went on to do. And other times, unless you are part of the world that they went to, you won't necessarily know. All right, miss. It's up to you. Can you see the top? Is there a ledge or anything? It's several more feet to the top. Come on. Take your time. You can make it. Five characters try to climb to the top, but their first attempt fails. The ballerina is almost there, but the sound of the mysterious bell that also rang earlier in the episode causes them all to fall. I can't reach it. It's just a little above me. Try! Stretch! Stretch a little! All of us! Stretch! Try! You've got to try! So let's take a moment to look at this most unusual set. It would seem that Petal may have had some input into the production. He said, I recall they were worried about how they were going to produce it. The vertical climb was a challenge for them but I suggested they build half of the huge container and make it horizontal, and that's how they shot it. I wasn't on set when they filmed it, but they took my suggestion and went with it. I never saw sailing before that party, and I never saw them since. So that's how it was done. This half-tube barrel was built at MGM, and they used a combination of stunt performers and the actors in close-up to achieve the effect. And William Wyndham said, I also remember how the entire set was constructed, so it could be tilted. In the scene when we stand on each other's shoulders, the tube was tilted, 
so we wouldn't hurt each other. Now, in the Twilight Zone Companion, Lamont Johnson said, It was like a theatre experience, like working on a unit set in a theatre, and I've done a lot of theatre, so it didn't hold any particular problems for me. The barrel was two different sets. One was vertical, the other was horizontal or at an angle, so that we could cant it and make it whatever angle we felt we needed for the camera. So with it being quite a unique set, it would pose its own problems for the cinematographer, George Clements, and in The Twilight Zone Companion, he says, It was a round aluminium set that we just kept moving around, and I could not use direct lighting. I used what we called indirect lighting, reflected. I had a great big sheet that was treated so as to reflect light. And in the great tradition of Forbidden Planet and the Twilight Zone, the set would later be used in various ways in productions of The Outer Limits and again in the Twilight Zone in the episode No Time Like the Past. Now despite their first effort failing, the characters persevere, and this time, the Major makes it over the rim. Well, what's there? What do you see? Major! So, the Major is a doll. They're all dolls. And the little girl who picks them out of the snow is Mona Houghton, the daughter of Buck Houghton, the producer. And apparently she was so nervous about her scene that her dad walked around the set until she was so tired that she couldn't be nervous anymore. So the Major is placed back in the barrel and the ballerina sheds a tear. Although these bear the likenesses of the actors, these figures that are in the barrel now, they're not them in makeup, nor are they actual miniature dolls. They're actually mannequins fitted with life-size masks of the actors to achieve this effect, which is actually rather haunting in itself. One anecdote that I've said several times in the show is that my introduction as a child to the Twilight Zone was staying up until two in the morning to watch it. And if I think back to that time and place and my idea of the show, this is the first episode that comes into my head. Second is maybe Mirror Image. And what both of those episodes share is a complete lack of an element of judgment or a moral to the story. They're both episodes where the Twilight Zone is doing something for a reason that we just don't know. In Mirror Image, it's a 
frightening situation having a doppelganger trying to take over your place in life. But with five characters in search of an exit, it's kind of frightening in a similar way, not knowing where you are, who you are, will you ever escape that place, but also not knowing how you got there and only knowing you are who you are because you just are. So in its own way, it's even more bleak and frightening. At least Mirror Image had recognisable locations and the main character knew where she was. But five characters in search of an exit is just a complete removal of everything from a person except for their designation, their profession or their most identifiable role. They are those things and that's all they know. The ending offers an explanation, but at the same time it doesn't. You know, we get it. These are dolls in the charity barrel. But why has this happened? If we create something and give it some semblance of identity, a ballerina, a soldier and so on, does it on some level take that on? I don't really think the episode is suggesting that. But what is it suggesting? Now Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion comments on the production, but he doesn't offer any kind of theory as to what this episode is about. Even Douglas Brody and Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, the 50th anniversary tribute, doesn't have an entry on it, and that book is very much about subtext and meaning. When I spoke to Arlen Schumer last year, he offered an explanation along the lines of, you know, we are all these people looking for a way out, these characters. With five characters in search of an exit, I think if we are to look for any meaning in it, then we really do need to look at it from a more philosophical perspective. Because there is no science fiction explanation. It's not about animated dolls, whatever that means. You know, they're not animated because they're little creatures or by aliens or anything like that. That's not really the explanation. It's not what this is about. This is a story that is purely existential. So I'll touch on this a little bit further by looking at the book Philosophy in the Twilight Zone, which is edited by Noel Carroll and Lester H. Hunt. And in it, there's an essay called Existentialism and Searching for an Exit by Susan L. Fegan. And I'll just read a few snippets because it's quite long and it is very interesting when you watch the episode and then read this essay. But it's clearly from someone who is more comfortable in this arena than me. So I'll just touch on a couple of themes that the essay identifies. The idea that what is fictional from one point of view is real from another. And second, the challenge to personhood and a sense of self that can arise when characters are identified in terms of roles rather than individuals with proper names. And then later on she writes, We are confined to circumstances we have not chosen and do not understand. That we are compelled to search for knowledge, both of ourselves and of the world, that necessarily eludes us and that the need to act in the absence of sufficiently good reasons to believe our actions will be successful, makes life absurd. So in effect, it seems to be that our life is absurd unless we're looking for 
reason and explanation as to why we're here. See, it all does get quite heavy, but you know, whether I think of it that way or not, I really do adore this episode. It's top draw Twilight Zone for me. From the interplay between the characters, especially the Major and the Clown, to the sheer sense of disorientation and the sense that they are in a place that is beyond what we understand. And when we do understand it, it makes sense, but at the same time it doesn't, and it doesn't really offer any comfort. I think that the existential aspect of it is all very interesting. But if you ask me, I don't really want to have this episode all figured out. In this case, I want to remain the kid who watched this at 2 o'clock in the morning and just had his mind blown. I see what's happening. I understand the flow and the purpose of the story, but the why and how is beyond my comprehension. And while I like the stories with morals and lessons and judgement, sometimes, maybe not all the time, but definitely sometimes, I think these episodes that really just don't have any answers at all, and is the Twilight Zone acting in a way that we don't understand, they're the most Twilight Zone episodes of them all. Just a barrel. A dark depository where I kept the counterfeit make-believe pieces of plaster and cloth wrought in the distorted image of human life. But this added hopeful note, perhaps they are unloved only for the moment. In the arms of children, there can be nothing but love. A clown, a tramp, a bagpipe player, a ballet dancer, and a major. Tonight's cast of players and the odd stage, known as The Twilight Zone. I'll just mention something briefly before I get to the listener emails. It's, uh, you know, sometimes as a podcaster and other podcasters might have experienced this, you get emails from companies offering to write transcripts of your episodes so that they can be used by people who have hearing impairments. That's great. The, the problem is they they charge like, you know, I'm sure it's a reasonable amount for the work that's put in, but it's more than I can afford to get these episodes typed up. And I had one of those emails recently and I kind of thought to myself, you know what? I can't do it myself. I can't type an episode out myself because my typing speed is just so slow that it would take me forever. But the thing is, I do make very extensive notes on these episodes and I can't, sometimes I just read them and sometimes I riff on them and it wouldn't take much to kind of just tweak those notes and add a little more into them to make it a, a document that someone could actually read. And while they won't get the atmosphere of the Twilight Zone podcast that I look to create in terms of the music and the effects and so on, they can still get the content and hopefully that will be enough for someone to be able to enjoy it because obviously some fans of the Twilight Zone are deaf as well as people who aren't deaf. So, you know, to be able to bring those people in to enjoy the show, at least in some way, I think is a really great thing. So I've tried it this time. And if you look on the website in the show notes, there is a link to a transcript of this episode using those notes and maybe embellishing them a bit more. And those notes do include 
the listener email. So, you know, it's a new world for me. I don't know. I don't know where there's a directory of podcasts that do this so that people can look them up, look up the stuff they're interested in. I don't know whether there's a better way of delivering this to people, but I will start to do that and, you know, and see how it goes, see whether there's any pickup on it for, for people who, who do. So in the show notes of this episode is a link to that transcript and hopefully it will get to some people. And, and if you know anyone who might enjoy it, then please do let them know. And, and I'll figure that out, you know, if there's a better way of doing it and so on as we go along. But for the moment, let's have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval. I've had an email from good friend of the show, Roger, and he really is a good friend of the show, one of those you know, real staunch supporters in so many ways. And he writes to me about the episode Once Upon a Time. And he says, Hi Tom, this TZ episode has never been one I've appreciated very much. So when I heard your creative intro to the podcast episode, I was pretty amused and looking forward to your take on the production. As it turns out, your overall perspective is pretty much the same as mine. Although I really appreciated the biographical and historical backstory that you provided on Keaton and the episode's creation. I have a better feeling for this production than before, although it is still one that I will not seek out for viewing. In your introduction to the podcast, you mentioned the one-off episodes that TV series would often do in the 90s and 2000s. It immediately brought to mind one that involves the Twilight Zone itself. In fact, knowing that your next podcast will feature the very Twilight Zone episode that ties in here. I'm wondering if perhaps you left it out of the examples you gave on purpose so that you could tell the story next week. If you don't know, what I'm referring to is the episode of Felicity that was done in 2000, written by J.J. Abrams. Abrams, a major fan of Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, wanted to create a tribute episode of Felicity. He selected five characters in search of an exit as a template for his story. He even went so far as to bring back Lamont Johnson to direct. You may recall that Johnson had directed the five characters episode of The Twilight Zone, and as a great touch the episode was produced in beautiful black and white. I thought it was cool that just like Sailing and Houghton did for Once Upon a Time, Abrams brought back a vintage director for this episode, which is entitled Help for the Lovelorn. Anyway, thanks for the work you put into your podcast, Tom. Your research adds depth and your production work and creativity adds a degree of fun to your program that keeps it at the top of the TZ podcast heap. Keep up the superior work. Best, Roger Scarlett. Well, thank you, Roger. You know, it's um, I didn't actually know about Felicity until I started to research this one and... Uh, your email came at around that time so I was aware of it at that point but thanks for for letting me know about it absolutely you know I guess the way I approach the Twilight Zone if Mark Zickery was to do a podcast he would come to it as an expert where for me it's more of a journey through the Twilight Zone so in a way I, I don't know what's coming up next so I wasn't aware of that one but thanks for writing in and letting me know and thank you as ever for your support, Roger. I always appreciate it. 
Now, I've had an email from another good friend of the show, Steve. I think this is the first time he's written in, but as you know, in the UK recently, we've had the Twilight Zone stage play. It's ended now, but um, Steve is not only a great supporter of the Twilight Zone podcast, but he's a UK fan and is and is a really enthusiastic fan of the Twilight Zone as well, which I always enjoy. He's a great supporter and um, he went to see the stage play too. So let's see what he thinks of it. He says, hi, Tom, I hope you're well. I'd just like to send you a little personal view on the stage play at the Almeida Theatre, which I saw along with my brother-in-law last Saturday night. It was great to arrive at the theatre and experience the buzz and anticipation that was very evident in the foyer and bar. I picked up a programme and a couple of freebie postcards showing the Twilight Zone logo and 50s TV which was also present on a larger poster. So already we were feeling like we were on the brink of entering the TZ for real at last. We were actually sat on the front row right in the middle, so when the white screen went up and we saw the set and actors, we really did feel like we were in it. In fact someone joked that we were so close that we probably had a mention in the programme. I felt that the stage play really took the audience on a trip to remember. It was quite different from any other play I'd experienced, which says a lot as I work in a theatre. The stage area was fundamentally a large black box. It was like taking the front off an old TV to see that the actors were in fact three-dimensional and real. The featured stories were presented in a unique way as well, I thought, each one bringing the viewer to a point of anticipation then moving on to another story, before finally coming back to complete the story with the twist and punchline. Most of the selected stories were not what I'd expected either, mostly being the ones that are a little bit more obscure, which was probably on reflection the only downside for me. I would have liked to see walking distance and time enough at last, but the ones chosen were done really well. I think the Twilight Zone stage play does a lot in respect of what the TV show did, and that is to surprise the viewer, challenge them, take them out of the norm and present the message in an exciting and thought-provoking way. All the actors in their black and white shades of 50s dress were excellent, playing multiple parts and being believable in them all. All in all, a very enjoyable different theatre experience. The audience clearly got into the spirit and were moved in all the right places, as far as I could make out. My hope is that the show tours, because with the right publicity, it could bring the show to a new audience. Just to finish, I'd like to say that I love the way Rod Serling himself appears in the guise of some of the actors when they find themselves smoking a cigarette at unexpected moments. Only people who have seen the show will know what I mean, but I thought it was clever, witty and fun. Well that's it Tom, looking forward to the new podcasts. I've introduced a few friends to it, and they agree like me that it's really one of the best shows we've heard. Regards from Sheffield, Steve. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, you know, I'm really glad you enjoyed the stage play that much. Uh, I, I think when I've spoke about it, I, I hope my misgivings about a couple of things haven't overshadowed it or, you know, soured it for anyone, because I, I really think in a lot of ways it was a great production and I wish I'd have got to see it twice, you know. I think if I'd have went back with 
you know, an expectation of what it actually is rather than maybe what I hoped it'd be and that kind of thing. I, I probably would have just sat down and enjoyed it, but I'm really glad you, you got a kick out of it. And I hope it tours too. I hope it goes to other parts of the country and overseas and so on. That would really be a great thing. So thank you, Stephen. Thanks as always for your support and your enthusiasm for the Twilight Zone. Us UK people, I think, I think we really need to shout about it as much as possible because, you know, in the US, in the US, it's on the marathons and so on. And I think they probably have it on throughout the year. But here, unless you buy the Blu-rays or the DVDs, then it's not on at all. So, yes, we need to shout about it a bit louder. And Steve definitely does that. Thank you. I've had an email from friend of the show, Rob, and he says, Hello, Tom. I'm a long-time listener and consider myself a friend of the show. My life has taken many turns lately, so it's been over a year since I've emailed. However, I've tried to keep up to date on your show and finally caught up. I wanted to comment on the two previous episodes starting with The Jungle. While John Denner did a fine job with what he had to work with, I was not a big fan of the episode. I didn't feel that there was much story there and the ending was a bit disappointing. In the beginning, the character of Alan Richards scolds his wife for believing in protective tokens. In the next scene, he is lecturing the other businessmen about the reality of jungle magic and revealing their own superstitions. There was no evidence that he was aware of this hypocrisy, and it made his character confusing. I also found the final act, which consisted of him darting his eyes around at stock sound effects, to be a bit silly. The brutality of the last scene, with the lion racing towards him, was shocking, especially considering it was 1961. In my opinion, this saved the episode. That's a shame you didn't um, get on board with that, Rob. I, I think quite highly of the episode, as you hear. I take on board what you say about the characters' um, thoughts about superstition and so on being quite mixed. You know, uh, Fred from the Twilight Pwns said something similar to me on Twitter recently. The, w the way I see it, I think he was quite conflicted on it himself because he himself, just as a person, wouldn't believe these things. He is of a certain world. He's a businessman, you know, very kind of stiff upper lip kind of guy. So he and himself wouldn't believe it, but then he's been to Africa and seen things that have maybe made him question his beliefs, but also part and parcel of that he doesn't actually want to believe these things because it's so against who he is but I, I agree that maybe the episode could have made that a bit more clear and at the beginning Rod Serling says something along the lines of he hates something that he cannot believe and, and I think that's kind of part of it for me but I do see what you're saying I think maybe the episode could have been a bit more explicit in that and Rob goes on to say, Moving on to Once Upon a Time, I think your review is spot on. The silent scenes with Buster Keaton were excellent, and I was surprised when you revealed they had not planned it that way from the beginning. The scenes in 1960 were much flatter, and most of the scenes with Rollo didn't work at all. I've been a fan of Buster Keaton for a long time, and was gratified to hear about your exploration of this founding father of cinema. More people should be aware of his genius. Oh, and your introduction to the episode, where you pretended to put on a helmet to move forward in time, was a perfect touch. I, I don't know what you're talking about, Rob. That was actually a clip from a genuine 
radio show from uh, back in the olden days and he says it's been so long since i've written and i wanted to again thank you for all the time you put in on the show i take such enjoyment in listening to the podcast that it saddens me to be caught up and to have to wait to hear the next one listening to these shows is like reading a letter from a distant and dear friend all the best rob well that's very kind rob thank you i appreciate that very much and thank you for throwing your you know your opinions in on those episodes as well it's always good to hear them and thank you for your support too i I really do appreciate it okay new friend steve has written in and he says i'm a relatively new listener to the podcast started listening about three months ago and i have integrated your show into my weekly schedule thank you for making my los angeles work commutes much more tolerable it has become my traffic therapy over the last few months as probably one of your youngest viewers at age 18 I commend your ability to time and time again appeal to an audience from all ages and locations. Well, thank you, Steve. He says, My mother introduced me to the show when I was a young kid with the After Hours, and for many years that episode would haunt me as I found the premise and the mannequins themselves to be quite creepy. Since then, the Twilight Zone has become a comfort to me through many life changes. And after watching all episodes multiple times, I have determined my top two episodes are A Stop at Willoughby and When the Sky Was Opened. Willoughby time and time again caters to the daydream-like experiences where we picture ourselves in a world that brings us eternal peace. And to quote the episode, a place where a man can live his life full measure. And When the Sky Was Opened leaves me with this very eerie feeling after each time I finish it. After listening to your episode from way back when, you articulated perfectly that the mystery is that we don't know what prompted the three astronauts to disappear, and with the lack of special effects, it creates an even more thought-provoking conclusion. I live in Pacific Palisades, a small coastal town in Los Angeles that Rod Sailing and his family resided in for many years. It's a small town, so I attended the same school as Rod's two daughters, much later obviously, and my grandmother was actually a friend of Rod's wife, Carol Sailing. Wow. A couple of years ago in our town newspaper, she sat down for an interview which I feel which I feel like you would find quite fascinating. So I will leave it below for you to read. And he does, so thanks very much for that, Spencer. She details their earlier life and Rod Sailing's writing experiences throughout the seasons. Keep up the great work, Tom. I look forward to the next podcast thanks spencer well thank you spencer and i'm glad the podcasts make your commute that little bit more bearable you know how great to hear from a younger fan of the twilight zone i always enjoy that partially because of the situation here in england where you know no one is really discovering it by accident on television which i think is rather sad so i'm glad it's still going strong with people of your age in America, Spencer. So thanks for writing in. And speaking of UK listeners, I have a message from Richard and he says, Hi Tom, I'm a UK listener and I want to say how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. Your shows are thoroughly entertaining and informative and really manage to capture the mood and feel of those classic Twilight Zone episodes. I first started watching the Twilight Zone sometime in the late 80s or early 90s when it was shown on Friday nights on Channel 4. I was about 15 at the time and I was hooked from the very first episode I saw. 
I used to look forward to it every Friday and even remember convincing my mum to drive home a day early from a family holiday in Kerry and Ireland to Belfast where I lived so I could make it home in time to watch the Twilight Zone on a Friday night. The fact that it had lashed solidly for a week in Kerry probably helped my cause. Then, one week Channel 4 stopped showing the Twilight Zone. I ended up writing to them asking if they were going to show it again and I did get a letter back saying they didn't have any plans to show it in the short term, but maybe they would show it again at some stage. As far as I'm aware, that was the last time the Twilight Zone was shown on terrestrial television in the UK. It's nearly 30 years later and my friends still make fun of me for writing to a TV station. I've lost count of the number of times they have started a conversation with the words, Dear Channel 4, before giving a sly look, in my direction. Thanks again for the podcast. The care and passion you put into each episode is really appreciated. Keep up the good work, Richard. You know, it's uh, you know what struck me about this, Richard, is that was probably when, I mean, my, I always say I stayed up watching it as a child, but I can't remember the exact dates. But that was probably it. You know, that's probably when I was staying up to watch it at the same time so here in the uk we do have that kind of shared experience some of us who are old enough to have been staying up to watch it at that point and it's stuck with us hasn't it it's stuck with us all these years and here we are you know some of us uh even go so far as to make podcasts about it but what a great thing that staying up and watching the twilight zone has stayed with us all these years even if uh, your friends do make fun of you about it so thank you Richard thanks for writing in now I have one more piece of feedback and it's an audio clip and you know I don't get enough of these I always enjoy them emails are great don't get me wrong and I enjoy them too but I like hearing the voices of people who listen to the show especially when they're from overseas and that kind of thing it still blows my mind how many people listen to and where you're all from. But this one's a bit special. I recognize one of the voices as my podcast and buddy Brandon, who's been on the show um, back at the end of season two. And he also did an episode of Twilight Zone Aftermath with me um, over on Patreon recently. But he's joined by someone else as well. So let's have a listen. Hi, Tom. This is Brandon. And this is Aubrey. And we just finished watching Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And I think Aubrey really enjoyed the episode. What did you think, Aubrey? I love it. I especially like the end because the ballet dancer cries and her arm moves. I wonder how the arm moved. Yeah, I wonder as well. So, Aubrey, a story like this, once you know the ending... What do you think about the rest of the story? Does it make sense knowing that these were all dolls the whole time? No, because they were moving. How were they moving? Well, it's kind of like Toy Story. Yeah, but Toy Story is like cartoon. Ah, so and like it's an adult and it's why were they in the bucket? So the, the toys were put in the bucket because they were going to be given away as Christmas gifts to kids who didn't have any oh. gifts. So that's what they were collecting toys. Okay. So while the episode was going on, what kind of things were you thinking about in your mind? Where did you think they were? 
Why do you think they got to where they were before we found out at the end? I think that I actually don't know where they were the first time I saw it, but I did. I did know that they were somewhere bad. Oh, you thought they were in a bad place? Yeah, and they were in a bad place. They could never get out. Yeah. Well, they could, but when it was Christmas and when they were wrapped. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things about this story when I watch it and when I think about it is there, there are many types of television shows that have a story like this where somebody is brought into a situation and nobody knows why they're there or what they're doing. And the last person who gets there is always trying to get out, but the rest of the people who've been there for a while have kind of resigned themselves to the fact that they're trapped and they've given up on how to get out. And it's this new person coming into the story that helps them to get out. There's a Star Trek The Next Generation episode like this called Allegiance that I think about. Um, and there's there's many others. It's kind of a, a story that's happened in a lot of shows. Um, so what I like to think about is thinking about these characters who have given up and why do people give up? So what do you think about the fact that the four characters who had been in there previously had given up and decided we can't get out of here? What do you think about that? Because they couldn't get out of there when they were in there a long time and they know more than the new guy. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's okay for them to have given up or do you think they should have kept trying? I think it's okay for them to, for, to have given up because they didn't have the sword. They didn't have the sword. Okay, and the sword and helped them get out. And they didn't have the ideas mm -hmm. because they didn't have the sword and they couldn't throw anything over so they couldn't get out. So you think that they had tried everything, but they just needed that extra person in order to get out. So it was okay yes. that they gave up because yes. with the four people they had, there was no way. Okay. Yeah. Because do you remember when there was only four people because the ballet dancer did something to her knee? That's right. Yep. Th there was like a mile left. Well, they said it was a mile, but it wasn't really a mile. It was long mm -hmm. left. So with the end, with the with the ending and revealing that these are toys, was that a shocking ending? And what did you think of that ending when it came? The first time it was a shocking ending. And when it was my first time, this is my second time watching it, I was confused why they said, we don't feel anything. Yeah, in the beginning. That's right. So how would you rate this? We've watched quite a few episodes of The Twilight Zone together. Mm -hmm. uh, what We're following along with Tom uh, going through his episodes one at a time here. What do you think of this episode? Is this one of the better ones or is this one of the worst ones? This is one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. The Boy with Magic is a good one too. Oh, it's a good life. You like that one, the little boy. Yep. Uh-huh. Right on. Excellent. Well, Tom, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this. Uh, this is Brandon in Canada. And, hey, and Aubrey. And Aubrey. So uh, thanks for the great work on the show. I definitely love listening along, and it gives me a wonderful reason to watch The Twilight Zone with Aubrey together. Thank you very much. Bye. You know, of all the pieces of uh, feedback I've gotten over the years on this show, I think this one maybe is my favorite. I love that Brandon and Aubrey sit down together and watch episodes of The Twilight Zone. And I have to speak to Aubrey for a moment here. Now, Aubrey, I have to thank you so much for sending such a intelligent and insightful and 
well put piece of feedback to my podcast and I'm really glad that you sit down and watch the Twilight Zone with your dad I think that's just a wonderful thing I have to say Aubrey this is just between me and you don't tell your dad I said this listen your dad's a really good podcaster but I think you might actually be better okay so don't tell him I said that that's just between me and you but thank you so much Aubrey and thank you Brandon for putting that together Um, and you know you're a very intelligent young lady it seems and I want to say that you're always welcome if you watch an episode of the Twilight Zone and you feel like you want to say something about it you're always welcome to send things in to the Twilight Zone podcast so thank you Aubrey so that is the end of the show lots of feedback which is great and if you want to email me then you can do that at tom at the twilight zone podcast an email or an mp3 clip like brandon and aubrey i want to say thank you to dj shay which is brandon who we've just heard who left a review on canadian itunes for the podcast so thank you I also want to thank new Patreon supporters. Now, I should have done this from the beginning, really, but there's so many on there now that I can't just reel off a, a list of uh, 80 or so names. But thank you to anyone who jumped on board from the beginning or in the meantime. You know, I, I really appreciate it. But I will thank the people who jumped on board in January of 2018. And hopefully going forward, I will do this every time we get new patrons. So... I want to thank Christina Snyder, Raphael, Michael Binney, Julian Buchholz, Rob Galise, Steve Badger, Paul Joggerst, and Alexandria Brooks. So thanks to all of you for helping the Twilight Zone podcast stay on air. And if you want to support the Twilight Zone podcast, then you can go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast and get bonus episodes and Twilight Zone Aftermath at the $2 donation level, which is a show I do looking at the 80s and 2000s Twilight Zones. And just as a little bonus for everyone, um, the 80s show was sometimes based on short stories too, and I put one of those short stories on Patreon recently, but I'm going to put it in this podcast feed too after this episode for anyone who wants to check it out. So that's enough from me. Let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, Mr. Dean Stockwell makes his journey into the Twilight Zone, playing the role of a platoon lieutenant on Corregidor during the last few hours of World War II. What happens to him provides the basis of a weird and yet, we think, haunting excursion into the shadowland of imagination. On the Twilight Zone next week, Mr. Dean Stockwell stars in The Quality of Mercy. short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations.